Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. If you're a regular listener on the show, you know that female representation within the global tax, accounting, and legal industries is important and personal to me. This month, it takes on even more meaning as it's Women's History Month. To talk about gender equality, I've invited Kate Barton back to the show. Kate is EY's Global Vice Chair, Tax, where she oversees all aspects of EY's tax strategy and operations, people development, client relations, quality control, risk management, thought leadership, knowledge, and learning. She also leads the EY Tax Executive Committee. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Kelly, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I know from our prior conversation that mentoring and supporting gender equality has always been a priority for you, but the world's changed a little bit since you were last on the show. So I was wondering what you think it looks like now. Have we changed in terms of where the needle is on uh, gender equality at all? And if so, what are kind of our next steps as women in the profession? Well, I do think that we've made a lot of improvements in gender equity and getting more women, for example, promoted to partner, which is so important because our women that join the tax law, people advisory professions, they all want to see their role models and see people like themselves with similar situations you know, reaching the highest levels in an organization. So I'm not saying that we're there yet, but I think we're making progress. And one of the things, that's actually really encouraging. (laughs) One of the things that we had talked about is the role that mentorship plays in this particular challenge. And you mentioned, you know, being able to see people who look like you, you know, reaching these tops of the profession. What can women who are in leadership positions right now do to encourage and support women who are on their way up? Well, I think it's so important that women who have obtained different levels of status in an organization serve as really great mentors and really great sponsors. And there are two you know, differences between the two. So mentorship is really important. It's the day-to-day constructive advice you might give someone as they come along in our profession. And, you know, that's super important. But I think the science would show that in many instances, our women are actually over-mentored and under-sponsored. And so I think sponsorship, somebody who will use their political capital and really help bring people, you know, young women along and say, this is the right person for this particular job and not making assumptions about what they can or cannot do, but asking them if they can take a meaty or thorny assignment on and using that political capital to give that that opportunity to a, a woman. So I think women need to do a better job or more to sponsor other women into the next um, echelon of leadership. And would you say that's sort of a, like a 50-50, the women need to look for people to sponsor and women need to look for those who can sponsor them? Or do you think there is more of a burden on the sponsorship person. I guess what I'm asking is, you know, in terms of figuring out the the load there, if I'm new, do I go find someone and say, I'd like to do the extra? 
Or does the person who is in the position of power then look for those people? I think that's the challenge. Because I think when people hear things like sponsorship, they're like, that sounds awesome. How do I do it? Right. And listen, I think in an ideal world, it should be on both. And, you know, women in high positions should be looking to find good mentees and sponsorees that they can take under their wing. But I think the reality is I put more of the burden right now in this unideal world that we live in on the sponsoree or the mentee. That person should really take the lead, identify. Because I think most people, if they're reached out to on a consistent basis, you start to form a relationship. Most people will gravitate towards that and really Mm want to help someone. So if the mentee could take 65, 70% of of that roll on, I think um, I think the dividends would be enormous. And when you mentioned earlier about those the projects, for example, do you encourage people to you know to volunteer? And if you do that, and I think that this is a place where, in particular, young women struggle a little bit is volunteering, especially in public. So, do you recommend you know does your hand go up at the meeting, or do you go <laughs> go and knock on a door? afterwards at someone's office and say, you know what, I'd like to be the one. Do you think it matters how that happens? Well, I think that a lot of leadership appointments and different account responsibilities or thorny issues get done sort of outside the meeting. So it's important to be building those relationships before you need them. Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest that you kind of put together your board of directors, if that makes sense. And who are people that you think could influence some of those future assignments and get to know them on a personal level. That said, if you're in a meeting where they're seeking volunteers, I would definitely raise my hand. But I think more happens outside the meeting. So again, sort of being strategic as to who in your neighborhood you should get to know before you need them, I think is critical. And when you mentioned strategy in particular, do you recommend that folks kind of gravitate towards those that are in the industry that they're, or the part of the industry that they're interested in, like salt or global? Or do you think, you know, if finding someone who is willing to kind of mentor you in the profession, I'm using air quotes, but the profession rather than the individual components makes more sense or does it not matter? Well, I think a a well-constituted group of sort of stakeholders or people that can help you should incorporate both. So sometimes it's nice to have somebody outside the family who, you know, like the immediate workplace that you can use as counsel because they'll have a different perspective. And sometimes they can see things from a 20,000 foot uh, level that you might not be able to see. So I like, I like having a few outside advisors. And then internally, you want to make sure that there are people that are in leadership spots that have that political power that you need. And so the bottom line is you need a combination of both, Kelly, really, to make this work. Right. And when you're looking at being a sponsor yourself, are there certain characteristics that you look for? Like, obviously, you want somebody who's going to be a go-getter and who has interest. But is there anything? No, again, I think that when you're young, you're you're sometimes hesitant to, to volunteer too much information, to put too much out there. Like, what are the kinds of qualities that you look for personally when you're looking to sponsor somebody that when you look at somebody and you're like, you know what, she seems like the kind of person who's on track for leadership. Like, what are those kinds of qualities? Well, I'm really looking for people that are first and foremost high performers, folks that really are willing to go the extra mile and 
you know, that invest in the relationship. We all like uh, to mentor people who, you know, will take that extra time, set up the meeting. So I, I do find that for myself, I'm just being honest, that that makes things a lot easier. And then um, people who are coachable. I mean, sometimes you, you, you're trying to mentor or sponsor someone who kind of won't listen. I mean, they've got their own agenda and, you know, you're really trying to help them navigate complex organizations. And so I think it's gratifying when someone actually listens, takes your advice, and then you can see the results coming from that makes sponsorship so much easier. But I I think it's a matter of results orientation, but also sort of listening and acting on the ideas that you give them. I love that you said that because as a parent, my youngest son, he plays soccer. And one of the best compliments I've ever heard anybody say wasn't how hard he plays or, you know, how good his throw-ins are, his kicks or anything. But one of the coaches one time told us he was the most coachable kid he had ever had on the team. And I think that that's important when you're in a position where you're trying to help someone get better, they have to be able to listen. And I do think that sometimes gets omitted in these conversations. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. It's a great example, Kelly. And so let's kind of move on to obstacles. So you've talked about these are ways that women can, um, you know, you look for sponsors and then other women can, and mentors, and then other women can help by looking for people to sponsor or to mentor. But kind of on the way up, what are some of the obstacles do you see most often on the way to achievement? And I mean, understanding that there's some built-in institutionalized obstacles, but what are things that you think if, you know, when you look back and you're like, ah, somebody had told me a little bit earlier, (laughs) I might've saved me some grief because I would have known how to deal with it better. What do you think are some obstacles that exist towards, you know, gender equality in the profession? Yeah. So I think there's a few that I would say you've got to watch out for. First, I I don't want to leave the men out of our conversation here. Clearly the dynamics of the working world dictate that our women need to make sure that they have good mentors and sponsors that are male as well. So, you know, that's really important and how you relate to folks is critical. So I always tell the kids in my family to make sure that they have five topics to discuss, you know, that are kind of fun and interesting. If they go out to any dinner or they're with someone, they can always revert to what are the topical things that they want to have, you know, sort of top of mind so that they're always interesting and not at a loss for small talk or conversation. So I think that's critically important. That's great advice. It is. And, you know, we practice it, you know, and and, and uh, family dinners and the like, and it's uh, fun stuff. So I, I think I think some of the obstacles or, or things that happen is, is sometimes our females um, will, will be short of time. And so maybe trying to go to A to B faster than maybe the organization can keep up on. And so how you navigate that, how you put some finesse on it, because mm-hmm. what, what's tolerated for men being direct or, or being super aggressive is okay. But if sometimes those, um, those attributes, if you will, manifest themselves in our women, you know, it can be more negatively construed. And so I still think sadly, that is something that I'll see, you know, what is what is considered a driver by fellow is not necessarily as well received when um, a female is a driver. So you've got to be careful of that, um, those attributes and just make sure that 
they're done with maybe just a little more finesse so that you still reach your outcomes, but maybe you have to zig and zag a little bit more, if that makes sense, Kelly. Oh, that totally makes sense. I have a very good friend who is in upper management in a different industry. And one of her reviews, she was so frustrated because she got nearly perfect. And then her boss told her she needed to work on her soft skills. And that annoyed her because she said, they wouldn't have said that to my brother, right? Like she really did feel like that was something that would have made a, it would have been a different review had she been male. Cause there is a perception that if you are aggressive or you have a different level of, uh, or style of leadership that, you know, you, you're missing those soft skills. Right. Exactly. And so that will still come up. I think we need to continue to work on that unconscious bias. I'd like to think it's unconscious, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's something that people just need to be aware. I mean, it's sad that we're still talking about that, but it it exists. Right. Do you think that the change in the workplace generally has been positive or negative for women? And what I mean by that is, you know, as part of the Great Resignation, there's a big shift towards, you know, there was fully remote. Now there's hybrid in some places. Do you think that being at home made it easier for women, harder, or do you think there was no difference? Well, I think it's complicated, Kelly. I I do. I think that in some ways, you know, many women were able to continue working, not without hardship in this um, sort of work from home environment. They had the extra issues of trying to deal with childcare, which typically does fall on female workers more than male workers. And so from time to time, childcare was shut down because of someone getting COVID or school was closed. And it was very difficult and how to homeschool children and, and get their work done. It was not easy. And so I found that as people came up the ranks and maybe could get someone to come in house to their home because um, they had the financial wherewithal to do that, it became a little easier uh, for women. They certainly benefited from saving on the commute costs, you know, the not the cost, but the time. Right. Probably both, but, you know, the, the time. <laughs> sure. And um, so that was a benefit. But what I, I worry about is now as we're going into this hybrid, and I was on with a bunch of clients earlier today, and some of them are doing three-day work days in the office, and then the other two from home, whatever it might be. I think women need to embrace that new model and make sure that they're going in. Uh, so that they have the FaceTime, because as much as we hate to say that FaceTime or some of that, you know, the side cooler, or the cooler talk doesn't matter, it does. And so mm-hmm. we want to make sure that our women don't get left behind because it's a little easier in not having the commute, et cetera, for children, maybe not to have that that commute. And um, I'm afraid that they might be missing out on some of that apprenticeship model that's so critical as you come up through the ranks. Well, that makes sense considering in the earlier part of our conversation, right? Like if, if a lot of what you're looking for is the person who's knocking on your door, if they're not physically at the office to knock on your door, that could be hard. I mean, then how do you find that person? How do they distinguish themselves on a Zoom call, right? Exactly. And so I would say be really strategic, like make sure that on the day that you're going into the office, make sure that there's going to be leadership in there as well. So you can do that knock on the door, the hello, the, um, you know, the, the sidebars. I mean, it's no point in going in if you're the only person there that day. So <laughs> right. is everybody else is, is around and, and make the effort. And I think it will pay off. Right. And one of the other things that I've heard of, especially women, but I mean, generally, I think 
a lot of folks in the the legal and tax profession, but taking some of the time that they've gotten back from the commute or you know what whatever has changed to upskill a little to figure out you know what they can do different because I do think that before the pandemic in particular, not that people aren't busy now because goodness knows everybody's busy now, but when people were busy, plus you had the commutes, plus you had the, you know, the quote, normal routines, I think it became really easy to fall into this trap of just doing more work, but not doing different things. And one of the things that I've heard people doing is, you know, I've, I've had friends that are like, maybe I'll go back and get my LLM. Maybe I'll go back and take an extra course. How important do you think it is to upskill in the current uh, economy? I think upskilling, Kelly, is super critical and recommended to everybody. Any extra time, even if you don't see the extra time, I'm I'm really always amazed at what people will do with time and how many people got a sustainability MBA. Sustainability is a key skill set that um, the business world needs. A tech MBA, that is huge. Everybody has to get more digitally fluent. And so those are are some of the degrees that are out there that we're really recommending to our people at EY to to do. But whatever it is, whether it's, as you said, the LLM, you know, honing in on tax technical skills or or just maybe doing more outside reading on the business world. I mean, we're certainly living in a in a crazy world right now. So the more that you can be more conversant on those issues, that's really helpful too. When you mentioned those two degrees, that is actually not something that I've heard people talk about, those two in particular. Do you recommend that, again, going back to uh, the beginning of the discussion, do you recommend that somebody go and knock on a door and say, hey, I'm thinking about going back to school. What do you think the company is looking for? Is that how people find out? Because I would never, I'm asked all the time about LLMs, probably because I have one, but I, you know, I don't have an MBA in tech or sustainability. How would someone know to do those things? Absolutely. And I think that's where a good mentor sponsor could be really helpful identifying those. Certainly within our organization, there's been a lot of discussion that these are the quote unquote hot skills that folks need in the the days ahead. So we have um, virtual MBAs in both of those two um, areas, both tech and sustainability. And I think they're um, really forward looking. But you should be able to find that out from a really good sponsor and mentor. And when you mentioned earlier, like reading and business, you know, just trying to keep up, right, on what's going on, do you have any particular either resources or directions where you think people ought to be looking? I know you've mentioned digital. Obviously, that's really hot right now. But if people were maybe not in a position to go back and get an extra degree, but they really do want to just learn more about a thing, do you have some general directions where you're sending people? Are you saying learn more. You mentioned sustainability. Like, What are those key areas that you think would help set someone apart in the profession? Right, right. So I do think sustainability and technology are are really good. But then I think world events, I think sometimes, you know, we're all so, um, so busy that that are, are you, you know, back to the five hot topics? Are you literate on what's going on in the world? Because that's what you know, CEOs and C-suite people, which again, everybody is on a journey to make sure that they can communicate with those types of constituents really well. And so that's where outside reading, I always tell everybody, you know, read the latest in management theories, like the Harvard Business Review is something that I will 
read each month. I read The Economist. And so I'm always trying to read to better understand issues. And then I think it takes a big skill set to try to take those issues and then personalize them or for me, taxify them. You know, how does that relate then to um, uh, the working world? And how can you, you know, add an insight to someone's discussion? So I think that's really important as well. And I think on the global um, front too, one of the things you said reminded me when you were talking about like magazines and journals that you read, um, my husband works international. So he actually gets a German newspaper delivered to the house so that he can get another perspective because a lot of his clients are German. Um, and I think that's really fascinating and interesting. I'm U.S. federal law for me, so it's not as beneficial to me, but it's, I do think it's really interesting to have a different perspective on the world. Oh, I agree, Kelly. And I do a lot of podcasts and I will purposefully listen to the news, you know, the BBC channels or what, you know, channels that are outside because I want that perspective. So I think what your husband's doing is fabulous. I'll, I'll let him know because I know from, from me, that probably doesn't uh, impress him as much <laughs> these days. Since you mentioned uh, keeping up with uh, what's going on, um, one of the big topics right now is the Supreme Court nominee. And I was going to ask you generally, um, you know, what are your thoughts on whether or not it's important to have more women on the court? Uh, you know, obviously, Justice Ginsburg, uh, Ginsburg is very famous for saying, you know, when someone asked her how many how many women are enough, and she said when there are nine, do you think that it's important to have more women from a visual level? Do you think it doesn't matter on the court? Do you, do you have thoughts generally? And I understand that obviously it's not a it's not a slot field competition, but just generally, what are your thoughts on whether or not it would be? I want to say important. Important can be maybe a loaded word, but important to have a woman, another woman on the court. I think what's important is that the science shows that if you have a good gender mix you're going to be a better, high, higher performing team. And, and so that's been proven and shown. And so I think that applies to our Supreme Court that, you know, everybody has different perspectives and the more that it can be diverse and, and then, you know, have really excellent inclusion techniques so that you're getting all the different perspectives before something gets adjudicated. I think that's just smart and smart for our country. So I'm big on, you know, making sure it's high quality and that um, we have as many constituents represented as we can so that we get the best decisions for the United States. I just personally remember being a little girl, rural North Carolina, um, hearing about uh, Justice O'Connor and being like so inspired. I didn't even know a lawyer when I, any lawyers at all in my family and um, even in our, our little hometown. And I remember seeing that and thinking it was such a big deal. So every time when we have these discussions, yeah, I just remember that feeling. And I just am hopeful that other little boys and little girls have that feeling of looking up and being like, hey, that's something I could do too. Absolutely. And so just kind of finally, I think to wrap up the conversation in general, you know, it's Women's History Month and there's always a lot of talk about increasing diversity and gender equality. And you touched on this earlier that you think it's, we're all hopeful, right? That it's getting better. What do you think are some next steps that you think on a global basis for accounting firms, law firms to take? And I'm not talking about the one listener who is like, you know, taking notes saying, what can I do? But just generally like big picture, what are some things that you think that law firms and um, accounting firms can do 
to make it easier to for both diversity and gender equality to be more, I guess, normal, right? Because it, it feels very, we're still at the point, I think, where it sometimes feels forced, these discussions. What, what do you think needs to happen to make that more of a, you know, a natural thing? Well, I think that we need to continue to make more progress and faster progress on getting more of the ownership ranks in these firms to be equitable in terms of women. So right now, most of the the firms, whether it's law firms or accounting firms, over half of the incoming classes are female. And so, you know, that's a, a fact. And I think we need to, see, you know, I don't think we should rest until the equity ownership of these firms is are in that same proportion as the um, incoming classes. And so, you know, what do we need to do? I think we need to be able to flex for people, realize that it might be done differently, but as long as we get the outcomes, it can it can still um, be very, very effective. And I, I think old ways of working need to go and we need to adapt and, and recognize that we're just better off as organizations to have that that continued mix of the of the owners. And I think that's important. So once once you arrive at that right proportion, I think things get so much easier for the next generation of women. It it just shouldn't matter for women or men. You know, you should it should be completely on the merit, which it always should be, but I'm just saying it'll be um something that we won't have to talk about. Right. Are you optimistic that we're getting there? I am. I I I would like to see the next 10 years go faster and just get it done as opposed to continuing to to wrestle these issues. So, but I'm optimistic. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great way to end the conversation. But before you go, I have a couple of our get to know you questions that I ask all of our guests now. So my first question would be, if you weren't working in your current job, what would you want to be doing? Oh, that's such a tough one because I love my job right now. but I. I think I probably would like to teach. I do enjoy the aspect of bringing people along. And, and so there's an element of teaching that appeals to me. Awesome. What's your favorite tax code section or reg? I think I like code section 351, which is a tax-free contribution. I guess I just like anything that you can do tax-free. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> What's your favorite book? My favorite book. That is so hard. I love War and Peace. Maybe I'm thinking about that right now. I love to read. So there's just so many. So I have a hard time um, picking one, but that's probably one of them that I've enjoyed. That's a very similar answer to what my my daughter recently had an interview and she said, mom, they're going to ask me what I'm reading. And I have like five books I'm reading. How do I answer? So I completely get that. And then finally, Tax Twitter wants to know pancakes or waffles? <laughs> both. I like both. And I think both apply to people. I, I don't know beyond that. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. If people wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? Well, I'd love for everybody to follow me on Twitter at EY or follow our EY tax Twitter at EY dash tax. And I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes so that everyone can just click through. Thank you again so much for being here today. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you, Kelly, and have a great rest of the day. You too. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. 
You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl Podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.